So as you arrive there in Acts chapter 28, I want to remind you what Paul has been through. We sang that song this morning. We have this treasure in jars of clay so that the world will know that the power that is in us and the things that are happening in our lives is not because of us. We're just, we're, we're clay vessels. We're easily broken. But when this treasure is placed in that clay vessel, the cracks that are on our exterior, our own failures, our own weaknesses, they actually are cracks that the glory of God can shine through and people can see that the power that's in our lives doesn't come from us, it comes from God. And that's the only reason that we're able to ever accomplish anything good in this life. It's because of the power that comes from God. And Paul says this because he knew it from experience that his life, all the things that happened in it, were not because of his own perfection or his own strength. or his. It, he was actually over and over again shown to be very weak. Um, during one of his trips on uh, missionary journeys, uh, he was found to have a thorn in his flesh. And scripture doesn't tell us what it is. He just tells us that he was constantly buffeted or um, tried by this thorn in the flesh. And the thorn in the flesh that's actually in the original Greek doesn't talk about like, hey, he had a pain in his side or he had this particular ailment, but we don't know what it is, but the thorn in the flesh that he describes actually in the Greek means a, a nine-inch tent peg. And so it wasn't just like he had headaches once in a while. It was something that debilitated him physically and kept him from feeling as strong as we would like to feel on our best day. And so Paul, being a weak man, being someone that had to be humbled on the road, when God had humbled him on the road to Damascus, he said, you know, this treasure that we have in jars of clay, it shows that the power that we have is not from God. And he says, we're afflict- I've been afflicted in every way. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned nearly to death. I've been given 40 stripes on my back being punished for sharing the gospel. And they, of course, he says 40 minus one because they would never do 40 because they didn't want to go over. So they'd do one less, you know. But the reality is, is that Paul's life was a, a life that was surrendering to follow Jesus in whatever Jesus gave him to do. I was listening to somebody teach the Bible this week, and they posed the question. It really convicted me. It said, his question for the audience was, do you take Jesus seriously? And the reality is, is that most time there are those moments where we take Jesus seriously. We take his warnings about hell very seriously, and so we want to be saved from that. But he hasn't just saved us from something, he saved us to something. Because our lives are not supposed to be some, a list of don'ts. Christianity is not about what we don't do, it's actually about what we do do, for lack of a better term. Uh, Christians are supposed to be those who do the will of the Father, just as Jesus said, I came to do the will of the Father. Everything that you've seen me do, I've done because he's told me to do it. And the reality is, is that many Christians, many of us maybe, don't experience the joy. We don't experience the abundant life that he promises, not because we don't love the Lord and not because we're not saved by him, but because we haven't begun to start taking those steps and saying, yes, Lord, I'll be obedient in this way. Yes, Lord, I'll lay down this thing because I know you've got something better for me. Paul's life was very effective and it was a bold life because he was willing to say, Lord, I had this life you gave me and I was wasting it. Lord, why don't you use it and I want to see what you're going to do with it. 
And so Paul is an example of not somebody that was a super saint, but an example of a normal human being that was surrendered to the will of God for his life and did it at any cost. And so as we continue our study in Acts chapter 28, Paul has been shipwrecked. He went on this perilous journey across the Mediterranean Sea. They left from the island of Cyprus and they went all the way during this perilous journey, seemingly with no direction, winds blowing them in every way. And yet it was the will of God for him to end up at the island of Malta. And we know that the word uh, Malta actually means refuge. So after being on this perilous journey, they, they end up on the side of the island of Malta, on the side that no one ever goes to. They meet up with these uh, natives. The word means barbarians. And they get there and they, they basically, Paul gets off the ship. They basically swim to shore from the ship because it runs aground. And when they get there, Paul's first thought is, how can I serve these people? And he starts picking up sticks because they're building a fire for them. It's cold and rainy. It's wintertime. So these people give them refuge and then Paul starts to gather sticks to build a fire. And while he's there gathering those sticks, building that fire, he gets bitten by a snake and they think, man, he's getting ready to die because that's, that's not just any snake. That's a rattle-headed copper moccasin. I mean, that's the worst one on the island. Now, I'm just saying that for you know sake of just making an exaggeration, but it was, it was a viper. It wasn't just a black snake or a green snake. It was a viper. They knew he was going to swell up and die, but he didn't. And it's because he trusted the Lord. And it's because the Lord had told him, you're going to go to Rome. So anything that happens to you between here and Rome, it might hurt, but I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to bring you through it. And then he ends up being able to share the gospel with these people on the island of Malta. And then as they leave, they get on a grain ship. And it says there that the people of Malta not only said bon voyage and put them on the ship, but they also sent with them all the provisions that they would need for the rest of their journey. So they blessed them. So as we come to that point, they're traveling up the coast there of Italy. They end up at Puteoli. I'm probably saying that wrong. And then they go up to Appius and three taverns. And there it's where the, there's Christians, a group of Christians that come and meet them. And as they meet them, they encouraged them. Paul writes in Romans chapter one that he hoped to go to Rome so that they could, so he could offer what God had given him as a gift to them to encourage them and so that he could also receive encouragement from them. I think sometimes we look at either Christian leaders or people that serve the Lord and we think, well, that guy's a Bible teacher or that guy's a pastor. What does he have to offer me? But as, as a pastor myself, I know that many times I'm way more, I feel way, like I'm way more ministered to you all when we get together to fellowship than I have to offer you guys. And it's not because you taught me the Bible, but maybe you shared a story about how God was reaching you, whether it's through a YouTube video that you watched and you were blessed by, whether it was just somebody that you heard was going through a hard time and you needed them to be prayed for. It, we all offer encouragement to one another. And as we do that, we bolster each other's faith remembering the Lord's mercies, watching each other walk through things, praying for one another. And as we do that, it constantly reminds us that God's at work. And so Paul received that mutual encouragement. And then verse 17, or verse 16 of Acts chapter 28 says, 
When we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. They finally arrive in Rome. They presented the prisoners, Paul being one of them, to the guard. But Paul, it says, was permitted to dwell or to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So he wasn't put into the prison. He was allowed to stay in his own place. I love that. Paul's a prisoner and yet he's given freedoms because he's actually not had any charges put against him that he's been convicted of yet. He's still a free man, but he's still under trial. And so God gives him freedom through these Roman guards. But he is permitted to live by himself, but there's one exclusion. He, he has a guard that makes sure he's not going to run off. Now, Paul wasn't going to run off. He knew that it was the will of God for him to go to Rome. He knew that this is the way that God decided to take him there. See, our God is a God of economy. And he used the Roman government to send Paul on a missionary journey to Rome. He gave him basically free board and room. And so when he arrives there, verse 17, it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Who, when they examined me, they wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against this judgment, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've called for you to see you and to speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. I thought I had a cup up here, but I guess not. Thank you, Steve. So Paul, he arrives, he calls the Jewish brothers together and he says, hey, I want to tell you why I'm here in Rome. I'm not just here because I actually did something wrong. Even the people that have been trying me haven't found anything that I've done contrary to your law or contrary or against the Jewish people. So because of that, I'm explaining to you that I, I really haven't done anything, anything wrong. And then he tells them, here's why I'm actually on trial here. It says when the Jews against uh, the Jews were against them, wanting to set me free. I knew that they were going to take me back to Jerusalem, is what he's saying. And they wanted to just kill me, so I wouldn't get a fair trial. He said, so that is why I was compelled to appeal my case to Caesar. Not because I had something against my nation, not because I had charges that I wanted to get revenge on them and give them, but because I wanted a fair trial. And I think this is important because... Paul has falsely been accused. And because he's falsely accused, you could think it natural that he would want to get back at the people that falsely accused him. But it doesn't say that he wanted to get back at them. It says actually that he doesn't have anything against them. In verse 19, it says, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. I'm not here to appeal to Caesar to get you guys in trouble. That's not why I'm here at all. I wanted a fair trial. I love this because in James chapter 3, verse 18, it says this. 
James chapter 3, verse 18. It says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Oftentimes, the way that we want to deal with those who war against us is by reviling them, by going back and warring against them. An equal and opposite reaction. Hey, they hit me in the face, I'm going to hit them in the face. But what God says is if you want to sow the fruit of righteousness, if you want to sow righteousness into people's lives, don't revile them. Make peace with them. And when we make peace with our enemies, it causes the world to go, what in the world is wrong with them? It causes them to go, why didn't they hit me back? Why didn't they argue? Why didn't I sue them? Why aren't they suing me? They must have a different moral system. Something's different about them. And it starts to really rub them wrong. They might even get more aggravated because you won't fight them back. But when they get more aggravated and they continue to fight you, here's the reality. They're going to be convicted. Something's different about that person. And I don't know what it is, but I'm going to find out. And then they'll dig deeper and find out that you're not fighting them back because Jesus, when you sinned against Jesus, he forgave you. And so you're doing the same to those who are reviling you or accusing you falsely. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you, want to, if you want your friends or your enemies to see the Lord, you're going to have to act like he does when he's been wronged. When he was getting ready to be taken to the cross, they didn't get back, he didn't fight back and call on his rights. He was silent as a sheep getting ready to go to the, to the slaughter. He gave up his life willingly. And there were those who were there during the day of the crucifixion looking up at him, seeing him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that soldier that looked up at him, what did he say? He said, surely this was the Son of God. He was who he said he was. Because there's no man that reacts that way to being punished or tortured or put to death. No one forgives their enemies in this world. Only God does. And when God does that, and when we start to reflect that same character attribute, they get to be introduced directly to the character and the person of Christ. So Paul didn't count this against those who had falsely accused him. Verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Paul didn't look at it like, well, I'm, I'm in chains because someone falsely accused me. He looked at it like, I'm in chains and I'm in this prison because of the will of God. And because he was totally surrendered to doing the will of God, he didn't blame other people for his situation. He actually, in some ways, blamed God. But he wasn't mad about it. He was happy. To be in the will of God is to be the most joyful and safe place that you can be in your life. And what's funny is that he says to them, because of the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Who is the hope of Israel? What is the hope of Israel? Well, let me submit to you that the hope of Israel is one of the names of God. Because if you'll turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 14, we get a little bit of insight into why he would say this. Remember, he's talking to Jewish believers. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the prophets. They knew the law. And Jeremiah is one of those prophets that spoke to the nation of Israel and he referred to God 
as the hope of Israel. Well, why did he refer to them as the hope of Israel? Well, let's look. In James chapter 14, I'm trying to think of the exact verse. Uh, it's in verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 8. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 14. It says there that the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. So the nation of Israel is going through a drought. He says there, Jeremiah speaking for the Lord, says, Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles or their leaders have sent their lads for water and they went to the cisterns. These were hollowed out places in the ground and they found no water. And then they returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and they were confounded and they covered their heads. They were mourning because the ground is parched. In other words, dry for there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads Yes, the deer also gave birth to the field, but then they left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was nothing to eat. There was no grass. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your namesake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior, in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O oh Lord, are in our midst and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. In other words, do not forsake us. Thus says the Lord to this people, thus they have loved to wander they have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. You see, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, were taken out of Egypt by God. They were saved. They were brought through the Red Sea, baptized under the water and brought back up on the other side. He brought them into the wilderness and then he delivered them into the land of promise in Canaan. When they got there, God said, this is your inheritance. This is the land I'm giving you. I want you to go in and I want you to fight the people and drive them out, utterly drive them out. And then I want you to live here trusting in me. So they did that, except they didn't drive out all the people. They didn't deal with all those that were from the pagan nations. And the other thing that they did, or they were supposed to do, they, it was, this wasn't going to be like Egypt where they had the Nile River that would provide all the water and the plants and the fertile land that they needed. They had to trust in the rains. Now, who sends the rain? God does. So what God told them is, if you will do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before me, you will obey all the things I've commanded you to do, I will provide rain for you. And that rain will be life to you. That rain will produce crops. It will produce, obviously, some grass so that the animals that you're going to eat will sustain themselves in this land. You can't trust in this river. You're going to have to trust in me to provide the rain. And so they said, sounds good, Lord. 
We love you. We're going to serve you. We'll never forsake you. But the thing is, is because they didn't drive the people out of the land that were not God's people, they started serving the other gods that they worshipped, that were not the, the God that they were delivered by out of Egypt. And so when they did this, this is called sin. And when they sinned, it caused the Lord to no longer bless them. It separated them. And so in this particular case, this drought was brought on by them being disobedient to the Lord and sinning against him. So they're crying out to the Lord, Lord, don't forsake us. Don't leave us here. And then they start to cry out to who? The hope of Israel. Is the hope of Israel a big um, army that will deliver them from their enemies? Is the hope of Israel the crops that they're producing on their own accord and in their own strength? No. Is the hope of Israel their circumstantial change? No. The hope of Israel is Jesus Christ. He is their God. And because they stopped hoping in their God and they started putting their hope in having enough food and in having crops, because they trusted those things, the Lord took them away. And when he took them away, all they had left was their God. And the gods that they were serving, when they let them down, whether it was the God of the rain or the God of prosperity, God let those gods let them down. And so they had to turn back to the one who brought them there in the first place. When God strips things out of your life, it's so that you will look back to the God who saved you in the first place. So the hope of Israel that Paul refers to here in Acts chapter 28 is God himself. But the problem is, is that Israel started hoping in other things. So he's reminding them of that. So then it continues there. Verse 21. The people responded to Paul. Then they said to them, to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. So this tells me that, number one, those people that brought false charges against Paul, they realized that you know their, their trial was not going well. They kept losing time after time. They didn't even see it as necessary to travel all the way to Rome and try to convict him once again. They had lost too many times. They weren't really in that far. And this also tells me that... Um, <laughs> His accusers weren't willing to come and accuse him anymore. It was too much work. And it also tells me they didn't even send any letters ahead to say, hey, this is all the stuff that Paul's done, just so you know. So in verse 22, the, the people speak their heart. They say, we desire to hear from you, Paul, what you think. For concerning this sect, this group of religion, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So they did know that the Christians were spoken against everywhere. That's basically the, the end of what they knew about Christianity. But that word in verse 22 says, uh, for concerning this sect, that word actually means this heresy. They didn't consider it like kind of an offshoot of Judaism. They considered it something that was false. So he says there, for concerning this heresy, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So Paul, what do you have to say about it? So the next section is going to be Paul explaining what he has to say about Jesus. And, and in verse 23, he begins 
Well, in verse 23, it says, so when they had appointed him or given him a day, they wrote it on their calendar. Hey, Paul, we want you to speak to us. Let's make an appointment. So they appointed a day and many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Paul didn't get there and sit down and have all these people come and then start sharing his opinion. I think it's important that we notice that. Paul very well could have shared all the story about how he got there in the first place, but he didn't. It says there that he reasoned with them from Scripture, from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And I love this because Paul, being a very opinionated person, could have gotten up on a soapbox, but instead he said, I'm going to tell you what the Word of God says. And he didn't give them the Word of God. He didn't start sharing the gospel and tell all the stories of what Jesus did. He started with the scriptures that they already knew concerning Jesus and the kingdom of God. And verse 24 says this, some were persuaded by the things which he spoke, and some did not believe. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. But before we go there, I wanted to point out a couple of sections where people explained from the scriptures, basically, Jesus. So in verse 23, we see there that he did this. And in Luke chapter 24, if you'll turn to the left, just uh, two books, Luke chapter 24, verse 27. The context of this verse is that basically Jesus had already been crucified. He had already laid in the tomb. And then he had already resurrected from the dead and he had been appearing to his disciples. But there was a couple of disciples that weren't there when he met with them and they were on the road to Emmaus. And while they were on the way to Emmaus, a person kind of caught up with them while they were walking. They were hiking down the road and all of a sudden this guy comes up behind them and hears what they're saying and interjects into their conversation says there in uh, chapter 24, verse 13, says, Now behold, two of them, two of the disciples, were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had just happened. They were talking about Jesus' crucifixion. <clears throat> so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know it was him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and you're sad? He noticed that these disciples were sad about something. So he asked them, Why are you sad? And then one, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger? Excuse me. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have not known the things which have happened there in these previous days? And he said to them, well, tell me about it. What things? So they said to him, well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers 
delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. This great prophet has been killed, so we're in mourning. Verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, the hope of Israel. See, there was a hope. They were looking for the Messiah to come, but they thought that the Messiah was going to come and be a, a political leader. He was going to take over and take, make sure that Rome no longer had the ability to rule over them. And so, indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. So, I find that funny that on the third day when he rose from the dead, he shows up and does this Bible study with these men that are walking. Verse 22, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, they astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that he had also seen a they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was not in the tomb, but he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, because they had to see it for themselves. They were just like us. You know, they were from the show me state. They, they went to the tomb as well and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He was not there in the tomb. So then Jesus said to them, them not realizing it was Jesus yet, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He says, didn't you read the Old Testament? The prophets were to tell you what was going to happen. He says in verse 26, Ought not the Messiah to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded or he explained, he explained further to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They didn't have the New Testament yet. So what Jesus did with these two men is he explained to them from the Old Testament all the things that the prophets were teaching about the Messiah who would come, the hope of Israel. So even Jesus himself did not start giving opinions. He started explaining the, what the word of God that was already written down in books at that time had told them would happen. Isn't that funny that oftentimes we are in a world that's looking for all the answers. Why are we in this life? What's my purpose? Why are we here? And we, every, there's self-help books out the wazoo telling people, this is how you can have your best life now. This is how you can make your life count. This is how you can leave a generation of wealth or whatever. Everyone's trying to tell us what life is about. And Jesus Christ himself didn't give his own opinion. He referred them back to the written word that was already there. That doesn't change. It's always the same. It will always be true. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of God will remain forever. And so I love this because it says in verse 28, then they drew near to a village where they were going and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them and it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, he blessed and broke it and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. They were sorrowful over the loss of the Son of God. He explained to them that they didn't lose him. He's still alive. And then he revealed that he was, in fact, the one that they were mourning over. I love that. We can draw near to God, and then he will draw near to us. And if we will do that daily, this situation that they just went to, 
is no different than what God offers us. Jesus desires to sit down with you and I, just like he did these men, to break bread with them, to explain to them from the scriptures himself, to reveal himself to them. And I think that sometimes we make it more complicated than it is. It's, it's a supernatural thing, but it's a totally natural thing. Make a habit of sitting down and, and asking the Lord, Lord, reveal yourself to me. And just like these men, you'll, he will. He'll, he'll sup with you. He'll dine with you. He'll feed you the bread of life. Paul had spent many of those days just receiving the bread of life. And because of that, he was able to explain to these Jewish men and women that the hope of Israel had already come and that he had been crucified, but that he was not dead and that the kingdom of God was being built under their very watch. They just hadn't received it yet. So some were persuaded by these things and some did not believe. And when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. So Paul speaks up after giving this testimony from the law of the prophets. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers saying, now some translations will say our fathers because Paul was Jewish as well, but he wasn't. He wasn't of those who didn't believe. Uh, Isaiah spoke of those who would not believe. He says, your fathers, saying, and then he quotes from Isaiah, and he quotes from, I'm trying to think. I don't have it written down here, so I don't remember where exactly it was. Oh, Isaiah chapter six. And he quotes this passage. And he tells the people, he says, go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears, excuse me, see with their ears, should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. You see, it's one thing to hear the word of God. But unless you have the Holy Spirit, unless you've decided to believe what God says is true, you won't be able to fully perceive it. Uh, for instance, have you ever been told something, you've heard the words, but you didn't understand it? Maybe it was instructions on how to build something. Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was in your Bible reading. You read it, you have the words, you've ingested them, but you don't quite understand what they mean. Well, the Lord tells us that if we will trust him and we'll ask him to give us understanding, he'll do that. But because these people are approaching God based on unbelief, they're hearing the same words that Paul is hearing when he reads the Bible, but they don't understand it. And so Paul's telling them that this is what God said would happen. If they wouldn't trust and believe that Jesus was the Messiah, then they also wouldn't understand what his words said in the Bible. So verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed, they left and had a great dispute among themselves. So before we go any further, I wanted to go to Matthew chapter 22 because there we have kind of an overview of what's happening in the nation of Israel during this time. Jesus teaches it in a parable. Matthew chapter 22. Verse 
Jesus spoke to the people that would listen. And in verse 1 through 14 there, he gives a parable of a wedding feast. Jesus answered and spoke to them, verse 1, again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and they went their ways, one to his own farm and another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. In other words, the messengers that this king sent were killed by those he was sent to. Verse 7, but when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, and he destroyed those who murdered his servants and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Had they been worthy, they would have come. Verse 9, therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how do you come in here without a wedding garment? You're not dressed for the occasion. And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So this parable is a parable about the nation of Israel. God sent his Messiah, his servant, to go and, and get his bride. His bride was the people of Israel. Now, the king in this parable is God. He's the father. And he sent his son to get a bride. The bride, the nation of Israel. What did they do with Jesus? They rejected him. They mocked him. They killed him. So, does that stop the son from getting his bride? No. Because the wedding feast was what the nation of Israel was invited to. But because they would not receive the son as their husband, God sent out another messenger to say, Hey, the prophets, my son is coming. The wedding feast is coming. Get yourselves ready because we're going to celebrate. And because they rejected the Messiah, they also rejected the prophets, and then they killed the prophets. All of the prophets were killed by the nation of Israel. So then, because of that rejection, it says there, they made light of it. They went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his service, servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies. He destroyed those murderers and he burned up their city. This is a prophecy about what would happen after they rejected the Messiah. What was going to happen during this time after Paul even is that the, the, there would be other nations that God would allow to come into the nation of Israel and to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And that's what happened in 70 AD. The Babylonians came in, they captured the city. 
They destroyed the temple. There was not one stone left on top of another. Jesus warned them of this. So did the prophets. And so because they rejected Jesus, God's blessing was taken from them. Now God's not done with the nation of Israel, but for a time they've rejected him. And so God says, I'm going to send my servants that I sent to you to preach the gospel. I'm going to send them to the Gentiles. And they're going to invite everyone, the good, the bad, and they're all going to come to the wedding feast. And they're all going to live this life. They're going to receive Jesus Christ. And there will be many who come in. They're going to come to church. They're going to be Christians. They're going to surrender their lives to the Lord. And there will be others that come in, not the way that everyone else comes through Jesus. They're going to come in. They're going to be around, but they won't actually be the Lord's. They're going to base their salvation on their own good works. They're going to base it on the fact that their family's always gone to church and, and whatever. They're going to be there with the wrong garment. We're clothed with Christ. That's what makes us redeemed. But there are many who are going to show up on the day of judgment. They're going to be there for the wedding feast and the king's going to come in and they're going to look at him. He's going to look at them and say, where's your garment? Now, what do we think of when we think of a wedding garment? We think of, we dress up. But the bride, we are the bride of Christ. If we are the bride of Christ, we're going to show up spotless and blameless, presented to Jesus as his bride. Now, guys, I know that probably creeps you out that we are the bride of Christ. But it's in a spiritual sense, we are being cleansed and prepared for the day of our wedding. We are trusting in the Lord. We're his completely. But there's going to come a time where we practically, we come up and it's going to be like a wedding. We're going to celebrate because we've been joined with Christ. We're going to see him as we know him to be. And we will be just like him. But for those that come to the day of judgment and they walk up and Christ is going to look at them and if they're not in him, they haven't been washed in his blood, he's going to say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. But to those who are clothed in Christ, their sins were as scarlet, but they've been made white as snow, they will be in the proper garment and they will be accepted in the beloved. And so when Paul tells them that if you know, therefore, let it be known that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. It's because they rejected it first. Them rejecting the gospel means that we have the opportunity to receive it. I love that. But when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. So Paul dwelt two whole years during that time in his own rented house, received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So that's the end of the book. I don't know about you guys, but when I watch a movie and it's all leading up to either a battle scene or a fight or some sort of conclusion, and it's all about, at this point, Paul getting to Rome and testifying before Caesar, and then they don't give the final scene where he testifies before Caesar? What in the... Luke, what were you doing? What happened? Why did they stop writing? Well, let me submit to you that the book of Acts was not only written so that we would be able to see the beginning of the church, but it was also written as a document, as evidence, to present before Caesar. These are all the things that have led up to me being before you, Caesar. And he had Luke write down all that happened as a witness, as a testimony. 
But I think it also ends like this because I think oftentimes we look for a conclusion. We read something so that we can know how it ended. But the reality is that the book of Acts is not over. It's over here. It stops in Acts chapter 28, but it's, it's not done being written. Now, obviously, we're not going to add books to the Bible. Uh, in the very last verse of the Bible, it says in Revelation chapter 22, it says there, <clears throat> Everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away the words from this book, God shall take away his part from the book of life. So we're not adding to scripture, but what I'm saying is that the book of Acts is actually a book that's not being done being written. And what I mean by that is that you and I have the opportunity, just like Paul, to take Jesus seriously at his words, to do them, to live by them, to trust them in our everyday lives, and we can be used just as boldly as Paul ever was. God's not done yet. And I know that because we haven't all gone to the Feast of the Lamb yet. And when he comes back, he'll take his church with him. But until then, we're left here as his ambassadors, as his foot patrol, as his green berets. And as we're here, we're not here by coincidence. We're here to do just what Paul did, to receive the gospel from the Lord, to believe it, and to tell everybody that we can. Oftentimes we receive the word of God, and what we do is like what my daughter did earlier. I hand her her cup, and she goes, what's this? It's just an empty cup, and she throws it away. She doesn't realize that that vessel can be refilled. God's not wanting us to take our lives and throw them away. He's wanting us to realize that he's emptied us and we're not throwaways. He wants to refill us. And as he refills us, he uses us to pour into other people's lives so that they can believe, so that God can empty them as a vessel and then fill them with himself and they can be ambassadors just like us. The only thing that's extraordinary about Paul is not that he was shipwrecked. Many of us have survived shipwrecks, maybe not a practical one but shipwrecks that have happened in our lives. But the amazing thing about Paul, the extraordinary thing about Paul, is that he knew God personally. He spent time with him daily. He let that affect him personally. And then he witnessed to people in his everyday life. Who's in your life that God's trying to reach? Who is in your life that God wants to, to save? Paul saw everybody he, he met as someone that God desired to reach and to save. And because of that, he was still willing to witness to those who hated him, who accused him. But he was trusting, his confidence was, in the hope of Israel, in Jesus Christ. So let me challenge you. Consider Paul's life and how amazing it is when it's written down. And ask the Lord, at the end of it all, when I go to be with you, what's my book going to sound like? I think Paul gets a lot of clout because most of the book of Acts focused in on him. But I think it's just an example of one person who was fully surrendered to follow the Lord no matter what it cost him. 
And because it's one example, that tells me that during Paul's lifetime, there were many other people doing the same thing. Paul was just in the spotlight. We're not necessarily going to be in the spotlight. We, not, most of us, not all of us necessarily, but most of us probably won't be a Billy Graham. We won't be on TV. We won't be meeting dignitaries. But at the end of it all, there will be a book that will be opened up. And I think it's going to start with Acts chapter 29. I think it's going to keep going. I think it's going to go on a long time because this is all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus hasn't left us. He hasn't forsaken us. He's still desiring to use us. He's just looking for us to be willing. So let me ask you, are you willing? And are you asking, Lord, what have you left me here for? Because if you're willing to do that one simple thing, he will show you. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you so much for being willing to send your servant Paul through various trials, allowing him to get hurt, to be falsely accused. Thank you for trying him in the hardest of circumstances and showing that his hope wasn't in his circumstances, but it was in you. He anchored his life to you, and because of that, he was not moved. Lord, our lives are tossed and moved by everything unless we're tied to you. I pray that each one here would fasten their lives to you so that at the end of it all, they could look back and see that it was a life well lived. Lord, our lives are nothing unless we let you take control of them. Lord, we surrender our lives to you, I hope, in the hopes that at the end of it all, you would get the glory and the honor that you're due. Lord, help us to live our lives like they're being penned down in your book, because they are, and help us to surrender our lives to you, not because we have to, but because all that you've already done for us. There are many without hope in our lives that need to hear the hope of the gospel because they don't have any hope in their lives. Lord, help us not to be ashamed. Help us to see that as a joyful opportunity. And Lord, help us just to, to give it all to you so that those around us would be able to experience the abundant life that you've offered to us. I love you, Lord. I thank you for this opportunity this morning. Lord, may your words deeply dwell in us so that when we share the hope that we have with you, they will point people back to you and they would receive you, Lord. We need your spirit to empower us to do that. That's the point of the book of Acts. One man surrendered to following you and completely, continually being filled with your spirit. Lord, may we be just like Paul. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.